So are you concerned about how you're going to pay for university for your daughters? Oh, I can't tell you. I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about that. Every day. Uh, the big pharma is a big issue and uh, it's, it's, it's corrupt and it's, uh, uh, it doesn't go through the right channels and we are here as just big means to suffer and uh, there is no option for us to uh, do anything about it. We should ask that question like do people in United States you know want to pursue this monopoly in India? They paid for it and, and I think a majority of people would say no I mean what's the point? People are too poor. I mean, I accept that as a part of my job. My job is not only to tell you that you have these three options. My job is also to tell you that if I were in your place and I had your financial resources, what would I do? Would I recommend you to take this even if it gives you an extra two years of life? Those are not decisions a physician is should be taking. Nowhere in the world would a physician decide for you where, how much your two years of life is worth. The system is not on your side. Neither the government nor the pharma company is willing to, to do much about it. I mean, this is like a daily reality situation. Then we will have to live by what's affordable and we will have to live by the reality that uh, he, will, he will have to pass away sooner uh, and we have to accept that reality um, and that's how we'll have to live with it. That's it. What else could you do? Why don't you just leave the developing world out of your licenses? What are you going to earn out of us? My question is, these drugs, you didn't create this drug for us. How many Indians can buy it at Pfizer's price? So what are you achieving by licensing the product worldwide? We began our journey two weeks ago in New Delhi, where we met Rupam Bora, a small business owner whose father has had prostate cancer for more than five years, Rupam has had to drain his savings and his children's college savings to pay for enzalutamide, a potentially life-saving prostate cancer medicine discovered by two UCLA researchers. And the saddest part of it all? He's already under such stress with just the generic version of enzalutamide. Across the city, UCLA is suing the Indian government in a courthouse for the right to make Extandi, a branded version of enzalutamide that's at least 800% more expensive than generics, the only kind of the drug on the market. Last week, we talked about how UCLA's actions are almost identical to what Big Pharma is already doing in India, filing patents for drugs they've already patented in the United States and the European Union, suing the Indian government if those patents aren't granted, and charging obscene prices for those medications, despite Indians relying on cheaper versions of the same drug. We learned that neither UCLA nor Big Pharma are really in it for the money. They're doing this for the street cred, of being able to claim global rights to a compound. It's cynical and sickening. This podcast began with us asking why UCLA even got tangled in this overseas legal affair. With a bit of flair, I managed to keep that question alive until this week, after we've gotten the full context of what's happening on the ground in India and what's at stake for both Indians and Big Pharma. As you might expect, there's a lot at stake for UCLA. Surprisingly, a lot of that isn't in the courtroom or even on administrators' minds. This lawsuit, titled Regents of the University of California vs. Union of India and Others, is tearing apart UCLA's global image. 
And that doesn't just hurt Chancellor Jean Block when he wants to sweet-talk some donors for the Centennial Campaign. It also hurts faculty and researchers. Our ability to do good to the community is being disintegrated by UCLA's insistent lawsuit. I'm Keshav Tharimeti, a senior staffer for the Daily Bruins Opinion section. This week on Pillbox, how UCLA is dragging all of us into its mess in India, and how we all stand to lose from it. Last summer, I spent a month in Hyderabad, the capital of the state of Telangana, in central India, before heading up to New Delhi to catch up with my colleagues Teddy Rosenbluth and Liz Ketchum. The afternoon before my flight, I met up with a fourth-year computer science student named Rahul. He's the nephew of my mom's work colleague and knows his way around the city. He picked me up in an old, red, stick-shift minivan. And when I say mini, it's actually a miniature minivan by comparison to those in the United States. And he took me around the city to various cancer research centers and healthcare professionals. As his red mini minivan creaked along the dusty road, giving me quite the roller coaster ride, we struck up a conversation about our interests and career paths. I found out he studied computer science, like me, and that he wanted a career in data science. He then told me he wanted to pursue a master's at UCLA. Actually, that's an understatement. He had been dreaming of it since his high school years. He had taken and retaken standardized tests to get international qualification into UCLA and was fervently pursuing tips for how to get in. I told him what I knew and wished him best of luck. The conversation then changed to what I was reporting on. You can imagine how fun it was telling him all about how his dream school was giving a master class on how to exploit a developing country. My experience was admittedly unique. It's not like Bruins are really being pitted against each other because of UCLA's overseas lawsuit. But the university's legal affair in New Delhi exposes it to very real criticisms from acclaimed scientists and institutions about how it pawns off its research without a conscience or forethought of what might happen. When my colleagues and I spoke to Lena Mengani, the head of Doctors Without Borders South Asia Access Campaign, whom we met last week, her first remark was about how UCLA is a sellout. Her second remark? How academic institutions in the United States are hailed in India as scientific stalwarts, but are now also selling out. That's remarkable. In other words, Lena and other activists don't singularly associate blame with UCLA. They think the entire system of egalitarian research done by U.S. research universities is becoming more and more money-minded. For me, I've always associated academic institutions with a, with some kind of principles attached to it. So it's shocking to see that they're so commercialized. You know, it shows that you know. Uh, academic institutions have lost their independence and academic institutions irrespective of whether they pursue science or they pursue any area of technology uh, should at least think that they you know the the in the work that they do on you know discoveries medical discoveries or technology should benefit people at large not just in their own country i mean uh, you know, just as we are doctors without borders, scientists should be without borders as well. Your science should cross boundaries and should be able to benefit people. And, you know, um, universities in the United States are so privileged. They get this funding. You know, we've been saying this for years in India, you know, that in, the Indian government needs to fund basic science, particularly in the area of pharmaceuticals and, and you know, uh, biotherapeutics. And, and then to see that research being just, uh, you know, sort of 
given off for a few million rupees without thinking of the consequences. While that kind of thinking may be a bit overblown, it's understandable. UCLA is a leader among research universities. It's looked up across the globe. Heck, I saw people wearing UCLA hoodies in Hyderabad despite not even visiting the campus themselves. That worldwide adoration is at risk with UCLA's international lawsuit. The principle that this is the first time the University of California goes to the Delhi High Court to argue against what? And, you know, I mean, to ask for a monopoly for which Pfizer is asking for an obscene price and you give them a blank check for abuse by signing off and giving them a power autonomy. It's just not acceptable. So who do you think is at fault here? Do you think it's the Delhi High Court? Do you think it's UCLA? UCLA. They could, I mean, this is the beast. Just give off your research for whatever money you can get. UCLA doesn't see it that way, though. And that's because, from its point of view, its lawsuit in India is a contractual obligation. You're probably asking yourself, what contract and what obligation? To really drill down UCLA's motivation for taking taxpayer dollars 8,000 miles across the Pacific Ocean, we have to rewind once again to 2003, when all of this Enzalutamide mumbo-jumbo began. After two UCLA researchers discovered enzalutamide and patented the compound, UCLA was on the hunt for who could bring the drug to market. The medicine, after all, could really only be made available to the public if the university either mass-produced the drug itself or found someone to do it. UCLA settled on Medivation Incorporated, a startup in the Bay Area, and licensed enzalutamide to the company in 2005. Licensing is essentially a fancy word for laying out the rights and circumstances Medivation had to use the contents of the enzalutamide patent. The licensing agreement between the two laid out how much UCLA would get in royalties from the drug sales, how much Medivation would make, the legal obligations UCLA had, the legal obligations Medivation had, and so on. You can think of this like licensing out music. Say you compose some nice tune. Let's say you license out your music to someone on Bruinwalk. You tell them when and where they could use the music, and how much of the profits, if any, you were entitled to via music sales and so on. In this relationship, you're the music owner, whereas the person you partner with is the licensee, or the one who is given the rights to use the music. Similarly, UCLA is the owner of the enzalutamide patent. Medivation is the licensee. That original 2005 licensing agreement, which was amended to be 66 pages, had a couple of clauses for how the patent filing process would work. One of them was that the UC Board of Regents would be paid a minimum of $100,000 in royalties, or 4% of the drug sales, whichever was more, every year for the lifetime of the patent. Others include how the UC would be paid up to $1.5 million by the third phase of the enzalutamide clinical trial, and up to $4 million more upon approval of the medicine by the United States government and other countries' drug regulatory agencies. Mind you, enzalutamide was discovered via public grant money, so UCLA was basically making $5.5 million just by signing the licensing agreement and waiting a couple of years. The most important clause, though, was one stating that Medivation had to bear all the costs of filing the enzalutamide patent in other countries, and that it could only request the UC to fight patent infringement cases. It couldn't require the university to. If that clause were still in effect, UCLA probably wouldn't be suing India for the right to monopolize enzalutamide. Pfizer and Estellus would be. But in 2009, Medivation entered into an agreement with Estellus Pharma Incorporated to help globally distribute Extandi, the branded version of enzalutamide. That same year, 
the licensing agreement was changed to state that the UC Board of Regents could be named as a co-plaintiff in any patent infringement or patent-related lawsuit in other countries. The Regents would be given 30 days to get the entire Board of Regents to approve the lawsuit, and then would be compelled to act in good faith to help Medivation's lawsuit. Pfizer acquired Medivation in 2016, gaining access to all rights Medivation had. That same year, the Enzalutamide patent was rejected in India. Pfizer and Estella sought to sue the Indian Patent Office for the rejection, UCLA was brought into bat, and the rest is history. Given this, it's easy to think UCLA really was bullied into taking on the lawsuit in India. In fact, that's what the university wants us to think. In 2017, the Union for Affordable Cancer Treatment wrote an open letter signed by 56 academics and civil society organizations, including Lena from Doctors Without Borders, Third World Network, the All India Drug Action Network, and Yale Global Health Justice Partnership, all requesting UCLA and the Board of Regents withdraw their patent litigation in New Delhi. In response to that, John Maziota, the CEO of UCLA Health, wrote a letter stating that while UCLA owned the patent, it gave up numerous legal rights to Medivation because the company, owned by Pfizer, agreed to take up the full cost of producing enzalutamide. Quote, Importantly, this life-saving drug would not currently be available for patients at all were it not for Medivation's significant investment and diligent efforts. End quote. UCLA also sold its royalty interest in 2016 for $1.14 billion, granting some credence to Maziota's statement. But if the past two episodes have taught us anything, it's that a healthy bit of skepticism downgrades a lot of UCLA's defenses. Three points in particular come to mind. First, while UCLA did sell all of its royalties, the money from the patent sale sits in a portfolio generating $60 million every year. And it charged a billion dollars for the patent, meaning Pfizer and Estellas had to find a way to make up the costs. Lo and behold, Xtandi costs $4,800 a month, and people can barely pay for it without insurance or heavy discounts. Second point. In 2007, the UC and 11 other universities signed on to a set of ethical licensing guidelines that emphasized the need to take into account the circumstances of people in developing countries. The so-called nine points to consider in licensing technology was signed two years before UCLA allowed that infamous lawsuit amendment in its licensing agreement that we talked about before. The final agreement between UCLA and Medivation had no provisions to ensure patients in developing countries would be able to afford enzalutamide. And finally, Maziota, in his letter, stated that UCLA was obliged to follow through on its contract in order to ensure further partnerships with companies like Pfizer and Estellas. In other words, despite the 2007 ethical licensing guidelines the UC came up with, it was unlikely UCLA would even include those provisions in its licensing agreement because it wanted to ensure its potential partner wouldn't walk away from the table. So all those things about helping people in developing countries, it was just PR. You know, I live with a filmmaker. Every day I see him use music. <laughs> when it comes to music, we can manage licenses. But when it comes to medicines, we are unable to manage licenses, you know. I mean, he makes films every day of his life and every day he's using music and he's paying for it. And because it's reasonably priced, the license fees, he's able to pay and use the music. While on the other hand, we are not able to do that for medicines. There's no question of paying reasonable royalty and being able to use the technology uh, or that area of science for, you know, sort of uh, either, you know, 
bringing in more affordable treatment or furthering science in itself. Before I left for India, I informally spoke to some scientists at pharmaceutical companies about the reporting project I was doing. Some of them talked about how companies like Pfizer face immense research and development costs, and that because of price limits in places like the European Union, these companies have to charge more in the United States to make up the lost money. This was before I had really done any reporting, so I went to India with that impression in my mind. But now, that point feels like a nice excuse Pfizer, Estellas, and UCLA must all be saying to themselves as they proceed to rip away an essential medicine for millions of Indians. Maybe it helps people like Chancellor Block and Maziota sleep better at night to say that enzalutamide wouldn't be available at all in the world if they didn't allow Pfizer and Estellas to have global rights to the compound and charge exorbitant prices even in one of the poorest countries in the world. But as my colleague Teddy Rosenbluth reported, other institutions like Harvard University were able to include global access provisions in more than half of their pharmaceutical licensing agreements. These clauses include allowing generic companies in developing countries to produce their patented medications. They also allow Harvard to refuse to prosecute patents in developing countries. UCLA could have done the same. Instead, it's resigned to arguing that what's happening in India is the result of a bad deal. And we're all supposed to drink the Kool-Aid and throw up our hands saying this is just the system and how the game is played. But this isn't a game. People like Rupam are suffering. Their families are suffering. And as someone who watched his loved one die in his arms, I know the cynicism and darkness that comes from realizing there was a cure, but that it was inaccessible. You start blaming yourself for not doing enough, for not giving up enough, not realizing things sooner. Chancellor Block and Maziota probably don't have to endure that anguish, but they're forcing Indians to. We'll be right back. If you like what you're hearing, head over to newsstands to pick up a copy of the Daily Bruins Prime magazine, which features a whole host of other intriguing stories about the university and the community around us. You can also head over to prime.dailybruin.com to read them online and find the full investigative suite about UCLA's overseas patent battle. When I set out to make this podcast series, one question really bothered me. Who's at fault? Is it UCLA, the university that licensed out its research and is now seeking to beat Indians into submission via their own justice system? Or is it Pfizer and Estellas, two powerful corporations getting UCLA to do their dirty work of plundering India? The concept of blame didn't really sit well with me. If you want to play that black and white game, you end up coming to this unsettling conclusion that everyone is somehow at fault. UCLA for not doing its due diligence and now being thrust into this disastrous situation, Big Pharma for exploiting the poor and uninformed, and frankly, even Indians for not doing their research and showing up in big numbers to fight against a system that oppresses them. But that's victim blaming. And that's not just unproductive. It's dangerous. Pointing the finger doesn't help us understand how and why UCLA came to sue the world's largest democracy, and how Indians can't do much except just pray a couple people make the right decision. Besides, looking for fault makes us lose nuance. Instead of asking who's to blame, there's a better question that cuts through all the gray area. Qui bono? That's Latin for who benefits. We can tweak the question to fit this case specifically. Who is being pillaged, 
and who is pillaging. When you phrase things that way, you find a food chain of pillaging happening in India and even in Westwood. At the bottom of the chain sit Indian patients. That's obvious. They can barely afford the generic version of enzalutamide, let alone the branded version Extandi. Arguably, even American prostate cancer patients sit here because their yearly cost of using enzalutamide can sometimes go up to $12,000, a little less than the in-state cost of attending UCLA. And the effect of this pillaging is really disheartening. After speaking with Rupam on the phone, we met him in a cafe where he described what he sees in the hospital when his dad comes for checkups. We are still having a chai here and, you know, I'm still pushing for medicines and going desperate and uh, have sleepless nights sometimes and all that. But, but still, look at people who are below us, who cannot even imagine. They don't die. And I've seen those kind of people in hospitals. I mean, they just cry. And uh, uh, I've spoken to a lot of people sitting there in the, you know, in the lounge, waiting for the doctor and all that. So, uh, they are completely helpless. You know, if you ask them, how much can you afford? Because if I have, say, 10,000 in my pocket and I say, maybe if I give them some money, it will help them. Because they are also in trouble. So, uh, if you ask them, how much uh, do you, can you spend? Beta, you know, I can spend 10,000 maximum and, you know, this situation is like this. And they start crying. And you don't know what to do. I've given them money, actually. And uh, so just please buy the medicines as long as you can stretch it. If it adds to your kitty. So, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough thing. Yeah. It's a, it's, but for that class, it's uh, unbearable. And um, if you sit in front of them, but to see what they're going through, you will not be able to hold much because it's terrible. Terrible. Children crying, mothers crying, wives crying, pleading, begging, don't know where to go. It's okay, we'll go back to the village. And um, so I spoke to one of the sons sitting there. So what's your plan and what do you do? He said, I'm a god. Somewhere he's a god. Like a... So this is nothing. I mean, in our villages and all that, we take our parents back to our villages and let them be there till they die. So which could be a month, which could be two months, and if they are fortunate, maybe three months, six months, you know. And that's, that's, the, that's the reality of this so-called uh, uh, progressiveness of our country. Yeah, it's bad. Really bad. Patients are clearly being pillaged by UCLA and Big Pharma. In that same vein, doctors and activists are too. Activists just happen to be potential patients with the courage and ability to fight. And like we found out in episode one, doctors have to contend with patients' financial backgrounds when prescribing medicines. And enzalutamide, even the generic version, almost never makes the cut. Extandi, the branded version, is practically unseen by countless patients. That leaves us then with the Indian government and the healthcare apparatus of the subcontinent. Is it protecting its people from predatory companies? Nope. In fact, it's naively welcoming those intrusions, as we found out last week, with officials getting chummy and overly accepting of Big Pharma treading into the developing country's delicate medical system. In a way, this gives us the second and really remarkable level of this hierarchy. The Indian government, by being negligent, is in a way pillaging Indians. Those in power who have the responsibility and ability, really, to protect India's generic medicine way of life are growing more and more lax about it. They're granting injunctions, patents, high court hearings, and countless other sit-ins with Big Pharma without realizing the consequences to patients. 
And that negligence, as Lena puts it, is born from a fundamental misunderstanding about how the pharmaceutical industry works. I come from a family of journalists and, you know, uh, there are like these five big myths that pharma companies will constantly repeat to a point where everyone else starts repeating it. One of them is this that, you know, the whole innovation system will fail if we are not granted these monopolies. The IP system is the basis of all science and, you know, development and technology and the new, you know, the drugs that we have. Uh, people don't understand the ecosystem of, of R&D. So this is something that, you know, Im immediately sort of patients, clinicians, policymakers just sort of see the front, the final clinical trial that's been done and, you know, it's been registered by a pharma company. Uh, the second big myth is that no one knows who pays for R&D. <laughs> Irrespective of whether you're Indian or American, you have no clue about the amount of technology you've created as an individual. That, you know, someone, it's not us who's paying, someone else is paying and therefore, you know, it's a privilege and not a right. It just changes the discourse completely. So, and then this myth that, you know, medicines take so much to produce, which is such so bullshit. It's the cheapest thing in the world to produce. Uh, what is expensive is the environmental controls, you know, and the land you build on and, you know, the licensing fees and stuff like that. In India, for example, uh, all the land on which pharma companies stand today is being subsidized by the government of India. So, you know, there's huge subsidies built into what pharma companies deliver. So this whole concept that pharma, you know, that medicines are very expensive to produce is so, so untrue. The fourth myth is that patents are sacrosanct the moment they're granted, that there is no wrong or dangerous patent. Enzalutamide is a prime example of how that's clearly not always true. And the fifth myth? Well, Lena got so excited about the other myths that we ran out of time in the interview. So you'll have to ask her about that one. But the four-ish myths about Big Pharma ring true for this enzalutamide affair. That thing about everything in science needing a patent to save it from copycats? The UC has made it a point to promote open access research that is open and accessible to the public. That part about research and development being a hidden cost? We, the public, paid for enzalutamide to be discovered in UCLA. That idea that medicines themselves are cheap to produce? Enzalutamide, by some estimates, costs 50 cents per active pharmaceutical ingredient. Pfizer and Estellas are charging triple that. They've already made billions in sales, and it's not like the factory to mass-produce Extandi costs several billion to build. And finally, that point about patents not always being justified? UCLA's entire rationale for patenting enzalutamide is built on the lie that it's to make the medicine more accessible to Indians. We're really, then, left with the final two players, UCLA and Big Pharma. It's unclear whether UCLA is being pillaged by Pfizer and Estellas. The university wants us to think it's the victim, but clearly it had the ability to change that situation. What's more important to note, though, is that we're all, as a result of administrators' nonsense in India, taking the heat. The future of medical research at UCLA whether companies and the public will be willing to partake in the discovery of further life-saving drugs after this enzalutamide patent battle is questionable. Whether UCLA's brand is still effective in India and other developing countries is also questionable. And university researchers are bound to wonder, to some extent, whether them conducting life-saving research, like discovering a cure for prostate cancer, comes with the surcharge of an international lawsuit. 
So really, this last rung of the ladder features UCLA and Big Pharma pillaging Indians via their ineffective governmental protections, and also features UCLA pillaging all of us via our association with the university. Like it or not, our tuition and tax fees are going toward this lawsuit. And the words University of California, Los Angeles are forever etched in history with the exploitation of 1.4 billion people. And my diploma, as much as yours, features those five words. I know this may sound preachy, but there's something we can do about this mess in India. While I avoided blaming UCLA, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be angry at it for its part in cutting off a potentially life-saving medicine. This disastrous lawsuit is a result of multiple failures. It comes from a failure of duty by Indian officials. It comes from a failure of humanity by Pfizer and Estellas. And it comes from a failure of conscience by UCLA. Whose failure is the biggest is for you to decide. But the fact remains that this trifecta of negligence and gross inhumaneness ends in blood being spilt. It's easy to forget that in the rush of Bruinwalk and the quarter system. But that blood can come from your fellow Bruins, relatives of students, faculty, and staff who reside in India. That idea brings me to a boil every time I stop to consider it. It should for you as well. You're standing in the world, your worth as a UCLA graduate, and the impact of your tuition and taxpayer dollars is being deliberately warped by your administration. And all so Pfizer, Estellas, and UCLA Health can dust off their shoulders and show off to the world. The money from this overseas legal affair is unlikely to fund scholarships, help people in need, or even go into administrators' pockets. This deal isn't for the money. It's a cynical exercise in power. We can either throw up our hands and accept that UCLA is stuffing us and Indians into a pillbox, or we can demand our university stop lying about having humanity and actually show it. Pillbox is produced by me, Keshav Tharimeti. The reporting for this project was done by me, Teddy Rosenbluth, and Liz Ketchum. I also want to give a big, big thanks to Kritika Soni, a journalism student in New Delhi who also works for the New York Times. This week, our unsung hero is you, the listener. This project wouldn't be possible without your curiosity and, frankly, your humanity from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.